Hello and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us online. For daily encouragement, events, service times, and more, check us out on social media. And now, this week's message. So it's October 2020, and I'm pacing the dark, street-lit cul-de-sac in my neighborhood. I'm talking on the phone, but I've got my hands free because I'm Italian. I have to use my hands. If I put them in my pockets, I'm on mute. I've got my AirPods in, and I'm walking around, and I'm talking to Pastor Jay about some of my fears. And Jay has this really great ability to ask really profound questions. He seldom makes a point as much as he just leads you through his question asking into the point that, that God would have you to hear, right? And I remember that he said this to me on this dark, humid night. It felt like summer, but it was October. He said, what are your biggest fears? I know. It's a heavy question. It's a dark question. It's October 2020, and I'm beginning to feel the weight of walking into this role. Some of you may know, and I don't want to go down too far this road, but I had been a part of a ministry for about 10 years and felt the Lord lead me out of there into a, into a school. And, and so um, that, that, that pay change was really felt by me, only because I've got five people dependent on me. And I remember thinking like, okay, if I torpedo my own life, that's on me. But if I torpedo or negatively affect my four children and my wife, I don't know if I can handle that. And I felt the weight of it. I felt a lot of pressure. It was hard. It was difficult. It was something I felt God called me to do, but I wasn't always so sure because of the pressure, because of the questions. And I remember in that season nearly losing my mind. Like, God, did I hear you right? God, did I, did I rightly interpret you? I thought I heard your voice. Hannah thought she heard your voice. I want to make sure. And the weight of five people being dependent on you is unlike most weights you'll ever feel. And walking into this role, I was beginning to feel that weight again. Only this time. <laughs> It's not five people, it's like 200, right? I was like, there's a bunch of people that I could fail. Like, God, what if they don't like me? Like, what if they walk out? What if they're like, oh, this guy, you know? And then the staff, I love the staff here. I had pre-existing relationships with the whole staff. Like Jay, for instance, he and I were in seminary together. I know his family. I love his family. I've watched his family grow, grow up. And if giving were to suddenly dry up here, it doesn't just affect Jay, it affects his kids. And it was like, oh man, can I wear that mantle? Can I carry that weight? These were the fears that were rolling around in my mind. So when Jay asked, what are you most afraid of? He wasn't asking me as an employee of Seacoast Vineyard Church. He was asking me as his friend. And I remember saying to him, it's like, I just don't want to fail anybody. This pressure, there's so much pressure. And it's a healthy pressure. 
You're supposed to feel pressure. There are times when you're supposed to feel a weight, right? Before a surgeon performs an operation on you, you want them to feel a little bit of the weight of that. You don't want them to be like frivolous, like, oh, whatever, you know, it's just another day, right? That's a good weight to feel. This weight is a good weight to feel. There's a weight in today's story that I'm excited for you to see. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Daniel chapter 1. We're just looking at this one story story here today. We're going to jump into another series next week where we walk through the parables. We're wrapping up Christmas, but there's this one story that I thought it was so important to begin this new year with. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. Somebody will race one over to you. Uh, don't leave Skip hanging. Don't, yeah, he's real eager to give away. It's just, if you don't need a Bible, just pretend you need one. Like, get, get, <laughs> um, there you go. Oh, his wife's bailing him out. If you're joining us online, we're so excited to see you. Um, we, uh, we know a lot of you guys are traveling back, and so uh, hit the hearts. Let us know that you're there. Comment. There's people talking to you on here, uh, praying for you. You can talk to one another, um, and you can grab your Bible right now, too. Those of us who are actually in the room, we're so glad to all be here together and studying this passage in Daniel chapter 1 together. Also, a quick hello to Megan's mom in Delaware. She was with us last week. Now she's back in Delaware. So we want to say hi to Megan's mom. If you don't, yeah, you can say it. We can all say it together. Hi, Megan's mom. That was fine. Um, all right, so we're going to jump in. The book of Daniel will stop and point out a certain amount of things along the way and, uh, and then ask how this relates to us today. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, pause. Nebuchadnezzar, this is a real dude. You're reading history. This is a ruler, a Judean puppet ruler placed on the throne by Pharaoh who came against Jerusalem because Pharaoh invaded Babylon. This really happened. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, I think I mistakenly said a moment ago that he was the king of Judah. He's the king of Babylon. He comes against Jerusalem and besieges it, right? So Nebuchadnezzar defeats the Egyptians, and then he pursues their fleeing all, army all the way down to Sinai, um, and he attacks Jerusalem along the way, who had been loyal to the Pharaoh of Egypt. There's a bunch of historical facts, but it happens in 605 BC. And the reason I point this out is to remind you that what we're reading when we read this is not fairy tale. This is not Mother Goose. This happened. You're reading history. This specific attack is documented by something called the Babylonian Chronicles, a collection of tablets that were discovered. This is mind-blowing. In 1887 and kept in a British museum, the guy who discovered these tablets that talked at length about this historical event, which is talked about in other places, so we've got like little scraps here and there that talk about it, but then these tablets called the... the, um, the where, did I lose it? The Babylonian Chronicles are discussed at length in these tablets that this guy found, and then he died, right? And so nobody looked at the tablets, and then like 60 years later, they pull them out, and they're like, no way. There's some first-rate, detailed military and political information about the first 10 years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. This happened, and the Lord delivered, verse 2, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Pause. And I want you to catch this. Judah 
fails. Judah's sacked, right? This, God allowed for Babylon to win. This is an important thing to point out because I think sometimes we assume that if we go through something, maybe God's not on his throne. Maybe God let us down, right? Maybe God's not watching or not paying attention or he didn't do the thing that we needed him to do. In this case, what Daniel is saying is that God is orchestrating the whole thing. Just because he didn't protect them, because he allowed somebody else to win, does not mean he's not present. God is still behind the scenes, behind the curtain, the entire time. So Nebuchadnezzar carries off, verse 2, to the temple of his God in Babylonian, the, the articles from the temple of the Jewish God. He took these, these spoils from the temple, these, these really important artifacts of worship, and he places them in his temple, which is immensely offensive to a young Jewish person. He takes this stuff and he, he just sets it up there. So after sacking Jerusalem, he hauls off the loot puts it in his temple. And the confiscation of these items, their deposit in the Babylonian temple was a dramatic declaration by Nebuchadnezzar, I'm your God now. I'm your God now. Verse 3, so the king ordered Ashpenaz. Let me hear you say Ashpenaz. It's fun to say Ashpenaz. The king orders Ashpenaz chief of his court officials to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. So God, I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar has Ashpenaz go into Jerusalem, like all these guys that are hauled out of there, and he goes, find me the influencers. Find me the popular kids, right? Find me the football players, the quarterbacks, the jocks, the ones who make A's. Like, go to that table. And I say that, if you ever um, experienced high school lunch before, there's those different tables where the different people sit. These guys are probably 14 to 17 years old. And, and, and yeah, they're young. And he goes, show me, find me the ones who draw a crowd, who draw an audience, who have prowess, right? What we are reading here is a brilliant, sophisticated, strategic system of indoctrination used by the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar, he's a shrewd tactician. When the empire would march into a new area and confiscate it, this is what he did. He goes, find me all the influential teenagers, the ones who everybody looks at for their reputation and for what's cool. Find me those guys, young men, see it there, without any physical defect, verse 4, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. By taking these young men as hostages, it would serve as a reminder to the people back in Jerusalem, don't try an uprising. Don't try an uprising. We've got all the quarterbacks, right? We've got all the popular people. But more, he would pour a tremendous amount of his own resources into these young men. Not only are they groomed for, for civil service, but he would have them physically trained by the best trainers in the empire. He would have them educated by the best educators in the empire, and they would eat the best food in the empire. Food back then is not like it is 
these days. Food back then, the best was reserved for the people at the top of the list, right? The most um, affluent in their society got the best food. And so for Nebuchadnezzar to allow these guys to eat his food, that's a big deal. What he's doing here is so brilliant. Not only is he taking the popular kids, but he's also, he's going to turn them into trophies of Babylon. He brings them out of Jerusalem, he puts them in Babylon, and he goes, all right, you're going to get worked out by the best trainers, you're going to get educated by the best teachers, and and you're going to get to eat the best food. So when, at the end of three years, when this time is up, these are going to be the most uh, sophisticated, um, intellectual, jacked up dudes on the planet, right? Because they've been eating the king's food, they've been training under his workout regimen. They're going to look awesome. They were handsome before they left. You ought to see them when they get back. Like, you know. And so the people in Jerusalem who might not like that Babylon is in charge now are going to look at these guys. These guys are going to say, Babylon's awesome. Look what they did for me. And they're also going to see for themselves. Look what they did. Babylon doesn't seem so bad. It shuts down an uprising. It's actually really brilliant, this form of indoctrination. He goes, take these guys, give them the best teachers, Give them the best workouts, give them the best food, and, uh, and we're going to make them tokens or trophies of Babylon. So verse 6, among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he called him Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So Nebuchadnezzar, he takes these guys, he changes everything about them. Think about this, being 14 to 17 years old, he changes their location, he changes their clothes, he changes their education, he changes their schedules, he changes their social status, he changes their dreams and their goals. He even cuts their hair and puts earrings in their ears. An earring back then symbolized someone owns you. And then he changes their names. He changes everything about them. This is total indoctrination. And for some reason, for some reason, when it comes to the food that they would eat, this is where Daniel draws the line. When it comes to the the alcohol or the wine that they would drink, this is where Daniel draws the line. He goes, "I've I've, I've let you push me just about as far as I'm willing to let you push me. I've let you change my clothes, I've let you change my name, I've let you change my schedule, but when it comes to a change that occurs on the inside, Daniel goes, no, no further. That's what we're getting ready to see here. Look at the next verse, but Daniel, circle, underline, highlight, I love this, but Daniel resolved in his heart, I could talk about this all day. But Daniel resolved in his heart not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. What's wrong with the royal food and wine? What's wrong with the, ro- the royal food and wine? There's a few things. We don't know everything that leads Daniel to make this choice. We know that probably it's, not co- it's certainly not kosher. So that's the first thing wrong with it. For a young Hebrew man... Not being kosher, he's like, this would be offensive to my God. Secondly, um, secondly, it would show that he was, he was okay with what Babylon was doing, right? Because he'd be eating with Babylon, his silence would look like approval. And someone in this room needs to hear that. Silence is always interpreted as approval. Have you ever noticed that? 
Sometimes we like to tell ourselves, like, well, I can go but not partake. I can be there but not get involved. I can go along. I can do the thing, you know, but just not. I'm just going to make sure that I'm okay, right? The Bible says, yeah, by you being there and not saying anything, everybody assumes you're okay with it. Daniel's aware of that. He goes, ah, I can't go there. Can't do that. Silence is interpreted as approval. Daniel resolves in his heart that he will not defile himself. We don't know why, all the reasons why, that this would have been a defilement, but Daniel feels a nudge that says, "Uh uh-uh, and Daniel goes, all right, I'm gonna resolve in my heart. And I love that he says that, (laughs) because Daniel doesn't resolve in anybody else's heart. Some of us, that's what we like to do. We like to resolve in other people's hearts. I mean, if we're honest, if we're going to, you can admit, like, if everybody would believe what we believe and act the way we, we act and, and behave the way that we behave, right, the world would be better. If everybody would just listen to what I say, right, I've resolved in my heart, and now I'm going to resolve in your heart, too. Could you just do what I do? You know, like, we resolve in other people's hearts, and we start, we start forming opinions about other people and putting them in categories and feeling different differently about them. And Daniel doesn't do any of that. He resolves in his, his own heart. This is crazy to me because Daniel's not the only Hebrew boy let out of Jerusalem. There's scores, hundreds, maybe thousands of them. And we don't read anybody else doing this. Daniel's the only one. He doesn't go around to all the others going, hey guys, you should straighten up. Like, hey, come on, we got to make a pact here, right? He doesn't do any of that. He resolves in his heart. Because he has a bedrock set of convictions. And I think that's super important to point out right now. Convictions are very different than opinions, aren't they? Convictions are very different than opinions. Opinions have to do with other people. Normally, what they should do, how they should live, why they aren't doing the same as you. And on and on and on. Convictions, though, convictions have to do with me. How I should live, how I should behave. To say it another way, opinions are outside focused, external. Convictions, on the other hand, are inside focused and internal. Daniel doesn't go around judging everybody else. You notice that. He doesn't go around to the other hostages going, hey guys, you got to straighten up. He goes, I'm resolving in my heart. It serves him as a bedrock set of convictions on how to navigate a world that doesn't believe what he believes. That's the other thing about opinions. Opinions tend to isolate us. Convictions tend to move us. See, opinions cause us, if we're, if we're not careful with this, we form opinions about everybody else and then we categorize them and then we come over here by ourselves and we're real lonely with all our opinions and even if your opinions are correct, they tend to isolate you because it, it keeps them over there and then you're over here all right and lonely with your opinions. But convictions? Convictions are internal and they allow you to move through a world that doesn't necessarily believe what you believe and remain true to God. The bedrock set of convictions, you're like, on these things, I am not changing how I feel. Opinions isolate us. Convictions tend to move us. Jesus called us to be in the world, but not of the world, right? To be moved about in this world. Not all lonely over here in the corner with your opinions, right? But moving within the world, guided by your convictions. Daniel knows this. But here's what I don't think Daniel knows. 
I don't think that Daniel knows that this is an inflection point. You guys remember inflection points? We talked about this before. Like the point on a graph where everything changes, everything moves, everything turns around. Like if you're in math, it's that point on a graph. If you're in business, it's the game changer, right? If you're in war or battle, it's the, that one battle that changes the whole tide of the whole thing, right? An inflection point is where everything changes. And I don't think that Daniel knew that that's what this was. Verse 8 is a big verse. It says, Daniel resolves in his heart not to defile himself with the king's food. We don't know why he considered it a defilement. Maybe it's because it's not kosher. Maybe it's because he knew it had been sacrificed to idols, which it most certainly had been. Maybe he knew that it would show approval of his captors and unity with them. What strikes me is that there are dozens, scores, hundreds, thousands of Jewish boys in the same predicament as Daniel. And we don't read their stories. You know why? Because they didn't resolve in their hearts. Who knows how many people felt the same conviction that Daniel felt? But they just went with the flow. And I think this is so important. I don't think that God is up there waiting to smite all the others for making this decision. I think sometimes we picture that, right? Like, like God's telling us to do something or he's nudging us to do something. And if we don't do it, then he's just going to destroy us or, or strike us. And I think that's just a, a misunderstanding of God. I think instead, what God is waiting to do is to do something awesome through your obedience that he's just not going to do if you don't. I don't think Daniel knew that. But I picture, I wonder, because there's a lot we don't know. You wonder if God is saying to Daniel, oh, Daniel, don't eat the food. Daniel, don't eat the food. Boy, if you don't eat this food, I know you don't see it now. But if you don't defile yourself with the food, if you resolve in your heart to remain true to me, to remain true to this conviction that you feel, you can't see it now, but by your obedience to me right now, then by the end of the chapter, you're going to look better than everybody. We'll get there in a second. And then by chapter two, they're going to be like, hey, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a weird dream and nobody can interpret it. And somebody's going to go, what about that good looking Jewish boy who eats lettuce and looks great, right? Why don't we bring him in? I've heard he's good with dreams, right? And then because of that, by chapter 3, Daniel's going to be standing out some more with his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then Nebuchadnezzar's going to put this decree out that everybody should bow to him and they're not going to do it. And they're going to get thrown into a furnace. And Daniel's like, I'm going to get thrown into a furnace. Hold on. Everybody else is going to die, but you won't. Isn't that great? Oh, and then later in the story, Daniel, 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 if you don't eat the food, I know you can't see it now, but if you don't eat this food, then there's going to be this big scheme to get you thrown into prison, right, among a bunch of hungry lions. They're going to feed you to the lions. And Daniel's like, they're going to feed me to the lions. Hold on. They're going to feed you to the lions, but the lions aren't going to eat you. They're going to eat the dudes who threw you in there. Daniel, Daniel, Daniel. People are going to read this story for thousands of years. People are going to name their kids Daniel. For the re- People are going to look at you and see how great God is. God, Daniel, don't eat the food. I know you can't see it right now, but there's so much that hangs in the balance right now. I don't know if Daniel knew any of that. I don't know if we ever do. Nobody would blame Daniel if he ate the food. We don't read about anybody getting struck down for eating the food, right? But if Daniel had eaten that food, there'd be no Daniel 1.8. There'd be no rest of Daniel 1. There'd be no Daniel 2, no Daniel 3, no Daniel 4. No Daniel. All those stories that you read about in Sunday school growing up, 
Most of us, if you were raised in the church, heck, even if you weren't raised in the church, you've probably heard these stories before, right? Those of us who had Sunday school growing up, you saw this on a felt board. A little Daniel, you know, and all these lions like, you know, and then Nebuchadnezzar's up at the top like, oh, I'm so glad. Like, we've all heard these stories before. If Daniel didn't make this choice, no book of Daniel. He had no idea what hung in the balance. (laughs) But he decided to give God a shot. God goes, would you just trust me? Which, by the way, is faith in the Bible. That's the definition of faith in the Bible. Trusting God enough to do what he says. Trusting God enough to do what he says. Emphasis on the word enough. Because there's a little trepidation sometimes, isn't there? Like, God, I think you're going to come through for me. I'm a little worried. I'm a little concerned. But I'm going to trust you enough to take a step, which is what Daniel does. He goes, "Uh, hey, Ashpenaz. Remember Ashpenaz? He goes, hey, Ashpenaz, we don't want to eat this food. Um, We don't want to defile ourselves with it. So uh, can we have permission not to? Look at, verse, uh, look at verse 9. Now God had caused the chief official, that's Ashpenaz, to show favor and compassion on Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? He's like, if you starve to death, you don't get in trouble. I do. The king would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. He's like, let's give it a trial run. (laughs) Let's just try it for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. And I put the emphasis on the word them because who is it really that is being tested here? Isn't it God? You know, Daniel's not saying, hey, you should check out my souped up metabolism that takes spinach and lettuce and turns it into protein, right? He's not saying that. He goes, let's just try God out. Let's just try God out. Let's give God the chance to blow our minds. Let's, let's, I'm gonna put the emphasis on him. Like if he pulls this off, We'll go from there, right? He's testing God, which I had always heard growing up, you're not allowed to do. Did you guys hear that story growing up? You're like, you're not supposed to tempt God, not supposed to try God. And I think it's true. Like, I, I, I think, you know, there's that story in Matthew chapter 4, you guys may remember. I had always heard it in the King James, which makes it sound a little bit scarier, if we're honest, right? I mean, nothing against King James. It just sounded scary growing up. It's like, Jesus says to say, he quotes Deuteronomy to the devil. He goes, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Remember, I think about that all the time. Jesus is out, he, you know, he's fasting, and, and then Satan appears to him to tempt him, and he takes him up to the temple, and he goes, throw yourself off the temple. If you're really God, the angels will catch you. And Jesus goes, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. I remember hearing that story growing up, and I'm like, gosh, I'm not supposed to do that. But there are those times where you want to put God in a position, you just want to see a little something, especially when you're younger. You're like, could you perform a miracle right now? That'd be so cool. It'd help my faith out so much. Like, as a young man, I thought I caused Hurricane Hugo. That's a true story. I remember, like, after Sunday school one morning, we had read about Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and how he calls down fire from heaven. It's like, you know, and I'm like, boy, I bet Elijah had no trouble believing in God. And so after church that day, I was, I was outside and I was praying. It was like, I don't really want you to do that. 
because that would be scary. But if you could just make it rain, right? And then a hurricane came and like leveled Myrtle Beach. I was like, oh no. Like, and then like three months later, we had a blizzard, a snowstorm. And I'm like, eight-year-old Tommy is like, I should have never asked God to prove his, you know, I should have never tempted God. You're not allowed to tempt God. This is why you don't tempt God, right? Because Jesus said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. This is what happens. To tempt God means to make any needless trial of God's goodness, mercy, power, or providence from a distrustful heart. Basically, you put him in a, like, prove yourself. You demand a sign. But there are those times where God asks us to test him. And I'm thinking specifically of Malachi chapter 3. This Old Testament story where God's super mad at the Israelites because they've been holding back the 10%, the tithe, the principle of the tithe, the idea that they give him a 10% of what they make, right? And God says to them, through Malachi, he's calling them out on it. He's like, you're holding back from me. I wish that you wouldn't because I wish that through your obedience, you would give me the chance to blow your mind. Look at what he says. He goes, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. He goes, I so want to, I want to smite you, but I'm not going to because I vowed that I wouldn't. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you. But you ask, how are we to return? He's rhetorically speaking for them. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. (laughs) How would you like to hear God say that to you? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In your tithes and offerings, verse 8, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe, this tenth, right, this idea of the tenth, into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And then those four words, test me in this. Give me the opportunity. You are holding back, but you're robbing yourself because, boy, he goes, look, see if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. He goes, boy, if you would just give me the opportunity, I will make it rain. Like, you know, you know but like that, too, he's like, I will take care of stuff if you would give me the opportunity. He's reminding the nation of, Is- of Israel the idea of the tithe. He's like, I've called you to this. And don't worry, this is not a sermon on tithing. It's just an opportunity to kind of tell you, like, God does give us opportunities to test him. Where he says, try me out on this. This idea of the tithe, I think, just by the way, just to wrap that up and move on, I think it's an old covenant thing. It's an old testament thing. If you're new to church, we call things the old covenant and the new covenant. In the old covenant, there's all these rules and sacrifices and ways that we interact with God, right, to have peace with God. But when Jesus came, he closed out the old covenant. It says, a new covenant I give you through my blood. And in this new covenant, it kind of wipes out all those rules, and tithing was one of those rules. So am I saying you should tithe? No. All right, The New Testament actually gives us a much broader rule that's a lot more rope to hang yourself with. Jesus says to be generous. 
That's a lot more. You're like, define generous, right? I'd really like to know. Hey, 10% is a great place to start, but I don't know what it means for you. I have friends that come to faith from outside the church, and they're like, I just don't know if I can do a tenth. And it's like, okay, do 2%, do three, do five bucks. I think the point is to have a spirit of generosity and to allow God to blow our minds. I think a tenth is great, but I think if you're not there yet, that's okay. Just learn to be generous. The point is generosity is the principle in the new covenant. And in the new covenant is where we are. So being generous is the point. And testing God. He goes, test me in this. Just give me the chance to blow your mind. God tells the people in Malachi's day. He tells Daniel. And I think he tells us today, give me the chance. Give me the chance. Give me the chance. Test me. There's wrong ways to test God. If you're taking notes, one is we tempt God wrongly when we demand the time, place, and manner of his help. When we demand it, that's wrong. Two, we tempt God when we demand a sign from him. Remember the the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they're like, give us a sign. And Jesus is like, you don't demand a sign from God. Think about Gideon. You guys remember Gideon? He asked for a sign. He asked God to verify something. It's a lot different of a stance. Three, we tempt God when we continue in sin. We don't talk about that one enough. But some of us, when we're in a lifestyle of something that we know is wrong, we know it's something God's told us not to do, and we continue in it, we're basically asking for it. He says, I discipline those I love. You're asking for it. And four is we tempt God when we neglect the ordinary means of preservation. This is why it's wrong for me to jump out in front of a car and go, God will protect me, right? Or in Matthew 4, for Jesus to throw himself off the temple. You're neglecting the ordinary means of preservation. But are we allowed to allow God the opportunity for us to taste him and see that he is good, Psalm 34? Man, I think he wants us to. I think he goes, man, Daniel, let me have the opportunity to blow your mind. Let me, I'm not going to judge you if you don't do it. I'm not going to strike you down. There's a lot of other people doing that. But if you choose in your heart to refrain, to do something different, you are leaving the door wide open for me to do something amazing. And I would really love to do that. So verse 15, at the end of 10 days, (laughs) Daniel and his friends looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. I want to be on this diet, right? I want to eat lettuce and be like, I'm jacked. So the guard took away their choice of food and the wine, and they were able to drink and gave them vegetables instead. He's like, just give them what they want. Like, these guys are awesome. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Like, this kid, Daniel, shows a lot of promise, and he wouldn't have shown that promise if he had forfeited the opportunity to be used by God by chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 8. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember before he was afraid? He was like, whatever, you know, I'm going to get in big trouble. I bet he was so eager to show these guys off. Like, you're never going to believe, like, these guys. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned 
questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This huge success that Daniel has. And all of this hinges on Daniel's trust in God in chapter 1, verse 8. No chapter 1, verse 8. No 15 through 21. No chapter 1, verse 8. No 2. No 3. No 4. No 5. No 6. No Daniel in your Bible at all. The book of Daniel is in your Bible today because Daniel resolved in his heart to trust God. To not defile himself. He goes, I am standing here. I'm standing firm. I'm resolving in my heart. He had no idea what hung in the balance. So it's October 2020 and Jay asked me on the phone, what are your biggest fears? And I'm like, where do I start? He has this great ability to ask really great questions. And I told him, I said, there's so many people I feel relying on me right now. That's a lot of pressure. And then Jay, knowing me so well, he goes, what has God called you to, though? That's a great question. I've told you before, like I've written out a mission statement for my life, and I, I post it places where I have to look at it, and it usually involves three things. One, teaching the Bible through story. I love stories about God, and I love getting to share that excitement with other people. This isn't fake. This is like, I, you know, if it were me and you in a coffee shop, I would be like, you'll never believe. You know, I'm pointing because Richard's like, well, I've been on the other side of that. Um, I, I love sharing stories about God. I love shepherding other people. I love being with, and then I love team sports. I love being on a team that has the most fun in life. Like we just, I think so often we get so concerned about where we're going that we forget that God's not really that concerned about that. He's concerned about who we're becoming. And I think when it's a church body like this, I think he is infinitely more concerned about the unity on the team than anything we'll accomplish out there because I see that in the gospels. I see that in Jesus and his interaction with the disciples. I don't think he was going, hey guys, we gotta get, we're really getting behind. You know, like I think Jesus is like, how's everybody doing? Like, I want to pour into you guys. I want there to be such unity. The world will know you by your love. So I told Jay that. I said, I just love to talk about Jesus. And he goes, what if you do that and let him do the rest? What if you trust him enough to do what he says? What if you obey him and leave the consequences with him? He goes, man, I'll keep an eye on the spreadsheets. I know you don't like those. He goes, Skip will watch the finances. I know you don't like that stuff. And otherwise, just do what he's called you to do. Test him in this. And you guys, the other night, I'm upstairs at my house, and I get a text from Skip to me and Jay, and I want to read it to you. This is December 29th, Tuesday night. He goes, after paying down the mortgage... Many of you may remember, we owed like a million bucks on the building, and we were like, I don't know, let's pay half of it. <laughs> we were like, should we start a, a giving campaign? And then like halfway through the year, we were like, I think we're in the middle of a giving campaign. Like everybody was giving so generously that it was like, I think we can write a check on half the bill, like half the mortgage, right? We didn't have to start anything. God showed us we were in the middle of one. It's crazy. <laughs> I had to write an email the other night. Like everybody, every church or nonprofit at the end of a year writes an email that's like, get your last, you know, tax donations in for the year. Uh, here's your last chance. And I told Hannah, I was like, I, you know, my email would say, hey, you're already doing it. Like, you know, don't, don't worry about it. And she goes, well, then write that. So I did. Skip text the other night and he goes, after paying down the mortgage, replacing the ACs, which was a 
big deal. Renovating the auditorium, all of this in here that you've seen, the changes in here. Repairing the sprinkler heads, which, you know, <laughs> kind of an important thing. And increasing our missions giving dramatically, which I'll tell you more about in a minute. God has already replaced what we spent. I got that, and I, I couldn't help but flash back to that conversation with Jay. We didn't do that. We're not that good. I honestly, I, and I'm not just saying this for it's like some kind of fake humility or modesty. Like, we've trusted God with the consequence. Like, we're just like, you know what? We're just going to obey you and, and trust the rest with you. Like, you'll do your part if we do ours. And even if you don't, which also comes from Daniel, even if you don't, we're going to be obedient with what you've entrusted to us. Jay goes, just do what he's given you to do. And trust the rest to him. So, in the last year, can I brag on you guys for a minute? Brag on God? You guys have sponsored over 80 children from Rwanda in an ongoing partnership with Africa New Life. You might want to hold your applause like there's a bunch of these. <laughs> Um, we've seen about 30 people get baptized, like take their next steps. Um, we've given away scores of Bibles, like every Sunday we're giving away, except this Sunday apparently, like you guys all brought your Bibles, which is great. Hosted, we hosted 2018 moms for a week through Young Lives. Um, we increased our missions giving significantly. I don't know if you know this or not, but our missionaries, we just like doubled what they get. We're like, let's just double it, right? And then Christine's daughter, Carissa, was, she felt like the Lord called her to Cambodia, right? And so she met with us and she was like, we'd really love for you to give. I've been meeting with a bunch of people. I've got this amount that I'm trying to reach in a monthly giving thing. And, and if you guys can participate in that, we were like, oh, what's your amount? And she told us and we were like, let's just do that. She was like, no, I thought you could help towards it. I was like, no, 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 we'll just do that. Like, we're literally trying to, trying to put God in a position, like, to kind of, like, I don't know, let's try to empty the thing out. And he just keeps refilling it. Like, he's met us every step of the way. We increased our missions giving significantly, doubling what our missionaries make. We added Mary. We added Carissa. We paid off half the debt on the building. We enlarged the worship center. We replaced the air conditioners. We repaired the sprinklers' heads. We added a kid's pastor and a student associate. Associate, Sorry, that's hard to say. It's Luke, Nick, Luke Dale. Um, and in response, this is all in response to our next-gen growth. We brought on Rachel and Ashton and more and more and more. I wrote this email, and then Christy was like, hey, I have a report of what we've done. And I was like, there's more? I want to read to you just some excerpts from it. In January and February, we held a food drive to distribute food to the elderly sick, those in the hospitality industry, and more. We started a clothes drive with Associated Charity. In March, these are just excerpts. In March, we delivered food to police and first responders who were exhausted and worn out. We collected and gave items to a sweet family who lost their home in a fire and is now a part of our church. In April, you guys came together for an Easter event in, in one of the more impoverished communities in our area, and 100 kids came, and five of them gave their lives to Jesus, and they started going to this church. 
we delivered medical staff care baskets to Grand Strand Hospital for 450 employees. We began hosting a homeless coalition here in this church with police, local agencies, and churches intent on helping the homeless in our area. In May, our Serve the Servants outreach on Memorial Day weekend delivered meals to police on the boulevard. When most locals were trying to get out of town, like we were like, let's go further into downtown, right? By June, our All Nations Cafe was in full swing with two locations. In July, bike safety and rentals continued. We hosted that Young Lives Camp with 30 moms and 40 kids. In August, through All Nations Cafe, nights and outings, 300 students, 88 volunteers, 250 bikes were rented out, 25 students attended church here, two were baptized, and one joined the mission field. In September, we hosted a citywide homeless coalition. Uh, we delivered more medical staff care packets to Grand Strand Hospital. And um, in October, we combined homeless coalition and addiction coalition meeting here in this church. We had a fall block party where more than 250 people from the neighborhood came and had a great time. In November, we hosted that Dream Sunday uh, here in the church for Rwanda and our partnership there where over 80 kids were adopted. Um, in December, you may not have known this, we had an angel tree. Five families, eight kids, five single moms, 10 kids, eight single moms through Coastline, two single dads, 12 kids. We had 28 single moms picked up through that who had 32 kids. And uh, on Christmas Eve, we delivered meals to 13 fire stations and two police stations all through this church. Okay, I'm done. Please don't take this as bragging. This is me kind of going, yeah, yeah, Miss Naomi, how? Because Jay challenged me to resolve in my heart, you know what, God, I'm just going to do what you called me to do and let you do the rest. And maybe he's doing the same to you today. Thank you again for joining us online. We hope you enjoyed the message. To connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. For more information about who we are, check out seacoastvineyard.com. We would love to hear from you, so make sure you leave us a review or drop us a message. Until next time, have a great day.